Hi and welcome to Social Work Sorted, the podcast. I'm Vicky Shevlin, I host this podcast and I lead Social Work Sorted, which is an online platform of resources for newly qualified social workers. I provide CPD accredited training and assessment skills for universities and organisations and through Social Work Sorted and my online platform, I run online masterclasses and I have an amazing new membership which I will tell you much more about at the end of this episode. I wanted to do something slightly different with this podcast episode and run through some of the questions that I get asked most commonly on Instagram and also some of the questions that you have sent me recently because you'll know if you follow me on Instagram quite often I will put up a question box to say what are the biggest challenges are you facing or what are the questions that you want me to answer and I thought that I would do that in a brief form through this podcast so you get a little bit of an idea of what that would look like and so many of you have similar questions so it just means I can cover them for more people. I'm also doing this because part of my new membership, The Collective, is a monthly live Q&A with me and for that Q&A you can arrive as you are with your questions in the moment or you can send me questions in advance if you want me to prepare a more detailed response but I wanted to give you a little bit of an insight into what that could look like for you and the benefit of having access to someone to support you, to answer questions, to give you insight into other resources that you can look into as well. Sometimes signposting you to things that will be really helpful that you might not have found by yourself. So they're not in any particular order. I'm literally just going to go through as they were asked and I might try and put a list on the bottom of these show notes so you can go to whichever one feels relevant for you if you need to. The first one is from Vaughn. She said her biggest challenge or what she would like help with is understanding the law in practice. There's no way I can cover this in one podcast episode but what I will say is I often think of the law like flat pack furniture. Bear with me on this metaphor but when you have flat pack furniture you will often get some very complicated instructions. And when I read law and legislation, I think about those kind of complicated instructions. Quite difficult to decipher. There is a lot to go through. The words don't often make sense. You have to read it a couple of times. That is where we start with law. And when we're looking at children's services, we're looking at law and legislation like the Children Act 1989, which is not an easy thing, I think, to read when you are going through it visually. From legislation, we have statutory guidance. And statutory guidance, to me, if the law is our complicated set of instructions, our statutory guidance is our visual instructions. It might be a diagram of how we put together our piece of furniture. Statutory guidance for me is intended to make sense of the law in practice. It's often a little bit clearer if we think about working together to safeguard children 2018, which is statutory guidance. There are diagrams in that. There is a much more simple layout and explanation within that. But then we come to actually putting our piece of furniture together. We come to practice and there are going to be things like nails that are missing. There are gonna be pieces of furniture that don't quite fit together. The conditions that you build your furniture in are going to change 
what you create. And this is how I loosely see social work practice because we are working with humans, family relationships, different dynamics of people. And whilst you have law and legislation, whilst you have statutory guidance, nothing can prepare you sometimes for what might come up in practice in terms of the emotions and the human connection. And that is why understanding the law in practice is so difficult. I would start with getting really clear on that statutory guidance because that is can be the first step in making sense of what a particular act might say. And then as a new social worker, what is so important to do is whenever you see something happening, whenever a process is taking place within a social work office, ask the question, what law does this connect to? Because whoever is taking part in this process or whoever is leading and guiding you, they should be able to refer you to a part of statutory guidance or a particular section of the law. For example, when you're undertaking a child and family and a child and family assessment, you will often be doing that under section 17 of the Children Act. When you're in practice and things are moving really fast, it can be really hard to catch up with how the law connects with that particular assessment that you're doing. So asking the question can slow you down and help you step back. Now, understanding the law in practice is so much bigger than a podcast, like I said, but so many of the masterclasses and the support that I'm going to be running inside the collective, which is my membership, is going to focus on connecting the law with practice because I think it's so, it's vital for newly qualified social workers to know and understand the law so that you can do your job, but also so that you can advocate within the parameters of the law because it is not free from prejudice and discrimination. And I don't want us to ever think that just because something is written in law doesn't mean we can't critique it when we are on the inside of it. The second question pointer is from Danielle, who has been part of the social sorted community for probably over a year now and I know she's just recently got her job and so she has put organising her diary and scheduling time for admin. If you've ever read the book 4,000 Weeks, which I would recommend, it talks massively about time and the concept of time and I am always quite reluctant to talk about things like time management because so often in social work you will have an impossible amount of time to do the tasks that you need to do. And it becomes really difficult when you offer advice on time management because I would never want anybody to take on board a piece of advice about time management and then find themselves overwhelmed because they have been asked to do an impossible amount of things and then internalise that and think, oh, this is my fault because I didn't manage my time enough when actually there are so many other things to consider. So I can give some practical things, but I will say that if you are feeling overwhelmed and if you're stressed, please don't turn into that headspace of this is me or I need another diary or I need to manage my time. Step back and think, actually, is what I'm being asked to do realistic for the time that I have? Once you've done that and once you're in that mindset, in terms of organising your diary, I always use an Outlook calendar I'm a bit of an organisation freak, but the reason I have always used an Outlook calendar is about safety, somebody knowing where I am, so I can put that in my calendar and somebody's a, I can share that with someone and they can check it. It's also about stress. I'm the type of person that colour codes a calendar, 
not just because it looks nice, but because if I have one color for admin and another color for home visits or direct work, I could look back on a week where I was particularly stressed and I'd be able to identify the different tasks that took place in that week. And so sometimes when you're stressed, you could start to think, why is this happening? And then I'd look back in a week and it would be all purple for admin and there won't be any green, which is actually when I'm with people doing home visits, doing direct work, doing the bits of the job that I really enjoy. And so it can be really helpful to view your week, especially if you're quite a visual person, to see that in different colours so you can connect that with how you feel and you can start to see the relationship between work and the impact on your health. I also think it's helpful to have that because you can schedule in things like admin tasks, like lunch, schedule them with the same importance that you do a meeting. Social work is flexible, things will often move around and change. You might not be able to fit lunch in when you thought you would fit it in, but you are more likely to do it if you have put it in your calendar, if you have written it down, if you've made a commitment to that. The same with your admin tasks. Social work is the kind of job where one thing can happen in the morning, one phone call can come in at half nine and the rest of your day completely changes and shifts. But again, you might not get that 9.30 phone call and so you might actually have the time to schedule in the admin that you're doing. It's also really helpful when it comes to your supervision to evidence, really, if you are being called up about timescales or work that you're doing and you have a blank calendar and you're saying I've got all this stuff to do but and that's why all my things are late if you can actually show your supervisor or your manager your calendar and say look these are all the things that I'm doing with my time part of your job as my supervisor or my manager is to help me manage this time and show me where I could possibly be fitting in all the other things. Because it could be an issue with the way that you're organizing your day. It might not be, it might just be that you've got too many things to do. But at least if you have a calendar to work backwards from, you've got something tangible to sit with rather than just a blank page. Some local authorities that I've worked in have always put aside or tried to put aside an hour for people to do admin in a morning and some people don't do that at all so there's lots of different ways in terms of scheduling that time for admin and I don't think it is a a simple answer as well but hopefully just the process of using a calendar or colour coding might be helpful or might be a helpful place for you to start. Another person asked something similar just in terms of organising their time Again, it's so personal. It depends the type of team that you're in. Some teams, you know, have to book out a whole week when they're on duty. For me, it always helped me to put little time reminders in. If I was going to be coming up to a home visit that would, was due, I would put that in my calendar. And I would book it even when you're doing home visits that are unannounced, if they need to be unannounced, if that's part of a child protection plan you can still book that in your calendar so that you're not then leaving things to the last minute. But again, that is said with the caveat of impossible tasks in an impossible amount of time. I've got another question about the transition. So this person said transitioning from student to graduate while not knowing anything. And I think a lot of you listening will relate to that feeling of I don't know enough or I don't know anything at all. 
moving from a student to a graduate, you aren't supposed to know it all. Think about other jobs outside of social work. You are required to have the skills to get you that job. You're not, you aren't necessarily expected to know the intricacies of every single system because that is part of your on-the-job training. That is what you should expect. And if you already have a job that is lined up, you should be asking, or I would recommend that you are asking about induction processes, the period that you are going to have of shadowing other people, when you can expect your first cases and the time frame of you being given additional work so you feel really clear on it and you're not going to start to get overwhelmed. If you are looking for a job, so if you're in like this, I don't know if this person has got a job if they're saying they're transitioning from student to graduate, but if you're looking for a job, again, focus on those skills. You have so many skills from your from your life before your social work degree, your career before your social work degree, your actual training, your placement, all of those things are relevant. And again, if you're applying for an entry level position, the people that are reviewing those applications are aware of that. They're aware that you are applying for an entry level position. You're going to be completing your assessed and supported year in employment. And so they're not expecting you to know everything. I think it's important when you're looking for those jobs to think, okay, if I'm in a job and I don't know everything, what are the actions that I'm going to follow. I'm going to be asking other team members questions. I'm going to be doing my own research. I'm going to be shadowing. I'm going to be making sure that I double check everything with a manager before I go and take on personal responsibility for things. Try and think, okay, if I'm in a situation where I'm not feeling confident, instead of just panicking about the fact you don't know enough, what are you actually going to do with that? What are the actions that you would take if you were in a situation and you felt you didn't know enough? Who would you talk to? What questions would you ask? Because then you're a bit more solution focused. Another question from the same person is about dealing with feedback or areas of improvement while being a highly sensitive person. I do have a podcast all about feedback. I think what I might do is dedicate another one entirely to what happens when we get feedback which feels difficult or feedback that feels personal because it's one thing getting feedback requesting it from people and receiving it back but it's another thing when we go through that and how we interpret it and sometimes feedback might feel personal when it shouldn't be I have had feedback before where I've gone through with a highlighter and I've highlighted everything that is more descriptive of things that I can change and if there's anything that is personal in it that isn't related to my practice I have literally scribbled it out not because I I want to ignore things that someone has fed back on but often there might be things that are personal there might be things in feedback that are intended to offend us or upset us rather than things that we can use to improve our practice So sometimes literally going through it and highlighting certain things and breaking that down can be really helpful. In terms of being highly sensitive, that can often be a strength in social work. I think if we turned off our sensitivity and we turned off our empathy, we probably wouldn't be as good as the job that we do. But again, if something happens in feedback that you receive that is personal, then it's so important to talk it through in supervision. It's so important to step back from it step back from it and think, 
why has that person said that? But also it's important to be mindful here that there are some words that can be personally offensive, but that is not to say that we condone abuse. For example, racist language, homophobic language. There is a a very fine line and it's important that where abuse is happening to us as social workers that we do report it and we do talk that through with our manager so people who are sending that in know that it's okay for us to get feedback but it is never okay for us to be met with abuse. Another question that I've had through is about placement and life story work and it's from Aaron who said building rapport with children and young people I've talked actually in one of my last podcasts with Debbie Bright, we talked briefly about life story work. Building rapport comes with relationship building and I think when we're working with children and young people, it's just vital to remember that everything takes time. I know time is very precious in social work, it's not something we have a lot of, but I think it's so important to think back to our expectations of children and young people. First of all, as a society, because as a society, we have very unrealistic unrealistic expectations of children in comparison to their actual levels of development in terms of their emotions and how they regulate those. But our expectations sometimes, and I know I certainly had these when I was a new social worker, I believed that I was going to massively connect with children and young people and they were going to share their experiences with me they were going to tell me their worries sometimes but when you step back and you think how often are you seeing a child or a young person in the context of their life if it's one hour every two weeks think about that in comparison to how often they see their parents their siblings their teacher the dinner ladies at school should I say I don't know what the lunchtime assistants sorry I shouldn't say dinner ladies then I should say lunchtime assistants sorry about that but I'm going to leave that in because that just shows sometimes we use the wrong language sometimes but yeah so I think about that in context don't expect a child to trust you particularly with the their deepest secrets with the things that they have never told anybody don't expect that is just going to come from one time of meeting you or seeing you sometimes it will because you might see that child in a particular crisis but it may not often be the case and so invest in the time in that relationship even if it's little and often rather than longer sessions you need to show a child or a young person that you can be consistent in order to build trust and rapport and you also need to show that you can be honest you can be respectful that you can if you listen to them and they say something to you that you can act on that not just taking in information from children and then leaving them without any kind of closure or without letting them know what you're doing with that information so I'd always start with that in terms of life story work I would say that it is not something that is exclusive to adoption and fostering Again, when I was a new social worker, I was quite sort of closed-minded about that. I I associated life story work with something that was only for adoption, when actually it's important for all of us. I would say, whilst I can't cover that in an entire episode, one of the most helpful things that I did through my degree was my own life story work. It wasn't the same as doing it as a child with a social worker, but it was definitely a process that was really self-reflective, that really 
made me think about my own life and I think if we're ever undertaking a piece of direct work with an adult or a child we need to have some idea of what that feels like even if we can't be completely in their shoes so with life story work I would start with doing your own doing that with a peer or doing that with a colleague sharing that with them thinking about how it feels to go through those processes to think about your own life to share that then with somebody what's the information that you include what's the information you leave out how does it feel where are the parts that cause discomfort just so you have some idea when you are then or if you are then in a position where you are completing life story work with a a child a young person or an adult as well because it can also be a really helpful thing to do with an adult too and and thinking about as something that is ongoing as well rather than a task that you need to complete is always helpful i'm going to go through one more which is around there's two that are similar knowing which approaches which theory which models strategies or frameworks to use and when which again too big for me to cover in one podcast but i will start with First of all, recommending you to go back and listen to the podcast that I did with Siobhan McLean, who I'm sure you will all know and be familiar with in terms of all her work around social work theory. I would always start with the person or the family before thinking about theories and models. So think about what is happening for them rather than trying to think, okay, I know this theory and I know this approach really well. And I'm now going to apply it to this family because that isn't child-centered or family-centered. So I would always start with thinking about what is happening in the moment for that child or that family. From there, then looking at models, approaches and theories. I'd also recommend going back and listening to the episode that I did with Martin Weber because he talks about research and the accessibility of research as well and how important that is in social work, but also how quite often what we are doing we will be using an approach we'll be using a model we'll be using a theory and we won't understand or realize that we are doing it we're always thinking about systems that are surrounding a child or young person we might not always be connecting that to ecological systems theory but that's where it originates from when you are undertaking an assessment the type of assessment that you're doing will be connected with a particular approach theory or model if you're working within a local authority there will usually be a particular model that is underpinning what you do whether that is through practice in your assessment or your risk assessments so sometimes you'll be using one without even knowing about it but I would always start with the family the person rather than starting with a theory or approach and then trying to apply that to people and understanding that which I think Siobhan McLean says in the episode, that no one can teach you how to think, which is something that's really stayed with me. And when you're thinking about social work theory, it's supporting you to ask why and to reflect and to think about things in different ways and look at different perspectives. And sometimes we can get really bogged down with the word and and overcomplicate it. But ultimately, it's about always asking why and being really curious. And I don't want that to be a vague answer. And what I am going to do within the collective, which is my membership, is really delve in deep to some of those theories and approaches that we use and actually how we can connect them to practice. Because I've always found that 
You know, it's one thing to write about a theory in a, an essay, but how do you share that with a child or a family? Have you ever, some of you might have done this already, but I remember sharing the Cartman's drama triangle with a family as a way of explaining that maybe this is what's going on or should we think about things in this way with this triangle, with these different roles in the triangle. And it can often be a really good way to connect with people. It's not us saying this is exactly what's happening in your family. It's just saying, hey, I learned about this theory and I wonder if we could talk about it and I wonder what you think about it and does this help you make sense of what's happening? Yeah, they'll definitely be much more where that is concerned because it's a question that I get asked a lot. I'm going to leave it there for this episode because I don't want to bombard you with too much. But if you have questions, challenges, anything that you want me to go through on the podcast or over on Instagram, all you have to do is send me a message. I will always cover it in some way, shape or form. If it's ever urgent and you need it within a week or two weeks, make sure you put that on the message as well because sometimes... A couple of weeks might go by before I then create a response to it. And I know that some of you are having things that are kind of week to week. So yeah, make sure you let me know. If you are interested in The Collective, which is my monthly online membership, it's £15 a month. You can leave at any time, but within that membership, there is going to be a pre-recorded masterclass every single month focusing on your practice skills a unique group forum where you can ask questions like this and I'll be able to direct you to support, signpost you or offer resources and recommendations. And there is going to be a live Q&A where we can really reflect together. You can bring any questions that you want to the Q&A. You can give me the questions in advance so I can present you with a more detailed answer. But this is about you having really personalised help The Collective is designed to be an online membership that helps you get through your first year in social work without burnout and reducing that overwhelm, but also to set you up with skills that you will use for the rest of your career. You'll use them for a lifetime because social work skills are so transferable. If you are interested in that, if that sounds like something that you want to know more about, make sure that you are signed up to the community mailing list. All the information goes out there first about when places are opening up and exactly what is going to be inside the collective for the first round of members. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this format helpful, if you connected with this particular episode or any other episodes, please leave a rating and or a review. It makes such a huge difference and it takes a couple of seconds and I massively appreciate each and every one. Before we go, I want to invite you to slow down for a second with me. I know I need to slow down after answering all those questions at lightning speed, but I wanted to get as much in as possible. And just take a breath. Close your eyes if it feels comfortable. Your shoulders back and down. Just enjoy a tiny pause in your day. Thank you so much for listening, for being part of this community, for supporting this podcast. Take care.